We're going to be reading tonight from the book of Romans, the 14th chapter. Romans chapter 14, beginning in verse 10. The Apostle Paul says, We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, Every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then... Each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Over the course of the meeting so far, we have been considering the theme of the establishment and increase of the kingdom of God. And we're not going to be breaking from that theme tonight, but we're going to be exploring a very significant part of it, which is the marvelous question of how it can be possible that Jesus Christ is able to redeem sinners back to God's good favor. In the early 1900s, there was a Christian evangelist named Tillett S. Tedley who was holding a gospel meeting in a small West Texas town where it happened that a murder trial was going on at the same time. Curiosity carried Mr. Tedley to the courtroom and he took his seat with the rest of the spectators and the crowd hushed as the judge entered in his long black robe and took his seat behind the wooden bar that separated his bench from the audience. The accused man was brought forward and the charges against him were read And the judge leaned forward to him and he asked him a grim question. How do you plead? He expected that the man would claim to be not guilty. But of course accusations had been made. Evidence had been brought forward. So why should the court believe that claim and allow him to go and live free? For that man, this was the question of life. It was probably the most important question anyone had ever asked him because how he answered would determine whether he lived or died. Mr. Tedley was deeply impressed by that scene and he went back to the place where he was lodging and he wrote these words, which are probably familiar to most of us. Someday, you will stand at the bar on high. Someday your record you will see. Someday you will answer the question of life. What will your answer be? Mr. Tedley was referring to the teaching of the Bible from the verse in Romans 14 we read before we prayed. That one day every human being who has ever lived since the creation of the universe, small and great, according to Jesus in Revelation 20 and verse 12, from every nation throughout the world and across time, according to Matthew 25 and verse 32, will be gathered together and judged by God for crimes that we are accused of having committed against him and against his creation. 
The Bible teaches that God created the universe with an orderliness and a structure that both dictates its proper function and reflects His perfect wisdom and holiness. And when that orderliness is communicated in the form of a teaching or a commandment, this is what we call the law of God. The law of God has appeared throughout history in many forms. There was the law of Moses, a code or a list of hundreds of commandments and prohibitions and precepts and instructions, over 600 in all, that was given by Moses to Israel as a part of God's covenant relationship with that people. And then there's what the Apostle Paul called the law written on the heart in Romans 2 verses 14 and 15, the aspect of God's orderly structure of creation that we can discern by observing the world around us with moral reasoning. And then there is the law of Christ, as the Apostle mentions it in Galatians 6 and verse 2, the precepts and instructions and prohibitions that are given to Christians through the teachings of the apostles and prophets of Jesus. We'll have more to say about God's law in a moment. But the law is that which defines right and wrong, good and evil. And to break the law, to do something that the law forbids, or to leave undone something that the law commands, is to sin. The Bible says that sin is lawlessness, or one translation, the transgression of the law. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4. The one who breaks the law is convicted by the law as a transgressor, a sinner, a criminal. James 2 and verse 9. And the same Bible that teaches all of those things makes this dreadful statement. All have sinned. Romans 3 and verse 23. Now all is a broad term, broad enough to include me and all of you and all of you and everyone who is out there and everyone who was born before us and everyone who will come along after we're gone. All mankind is accused of sin. And the same Bible says that the wages or the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6 and verse 23. Now we could spend a great deal of time discussing the nature of this death, but it's sufficient now to say that it means something more than the termination of physical life. This is an eternal death. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28, do not fear the one who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear God, who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. One day we will all appear before God to answer to this accusation of sin and to be found guilty is to be destroyed in hell. Now there's some people in this world who are very foolish and they are hardened in the deceitfulness of sin. And they would tell you they know that they are guilty against the law of God. But they claim not to care. 
One day they will care. One day they will cry to the rocks and the mountains to fall on them. That would be painful. But it would be better in their eyes than to have to face the wrath and judgment of God. And they will only wish that they had escaped that fate and that those that they loved would be wiser than they. Now I think there's no one here who is so foolish. I trust that you're here today because you believe in God and you believe the Bible. And if you believe those things and you know that this day of judgment is coming and we will be asked the same question as that man in Texas a long time ago, but we'll be asked by God, how do you plead? We want to make sure that we will give an answer that leads to our acquittal, to our being found not guilty and spared the penalty of eternal death. Now the idea of being found not guilty before God is the meaning of a very prominent scriptural term, justification. I suggest that justification has been a neglected theme among our people. Now, I don't want to project my own ignorance onto all of you, but I didn't understand it for most of my life. I was thinking about this just this morning. Brother Ronnie Wade wrote a column in the Old Paz Advocate for 30 years where people would ask questions and seek Bible answers. And people asked questions about whether or not you should eat a meal in a church building, or whether or not you should call on a man to wait on the table if he didn't wear a necktie. But in 30 years, no one asked a question about justification. The word was never mentioned in his column. That wasn't his fault. It was the questions that he was asked by other people. But that tells us something, doesn't it? That this subject, which is very important in the Bible, has perhaps been a blind spot for many of us. And I know it was for me. I did not understand the meaning of the word for the first 15 years of my preaching career. Justification does not mean salvation. The two terms are not synonymous. As we're going to see in a moment, there is only one way to be saved. But there are many ways to be justified, depending on who the judge is and the manner of the judgment. Justification means being regarded as not guilty of a crime. Now this subject is all over the scripture. But the Apostle Paul wrote more frequently and perhaps more thoughtfully about the subject than any other biblical writer. So tonight I want us to use Paul as a legal counselor and primarily to use his writings to help us understand what the right answer is. How must we plead in order to be justified, to be found not guilty in the sight of God? Now the most reasonable plea that one could offer if he hoped to be acquitted of a criminal charge would be to plead not guilty by reason of innocence. I didn't do it. Now in the Bible, the Apostle Paul expresses this concept with the phrase justification by works of law. 
That phrase or some form of it appears several times in Paul's writing. And in some English translations, uh, you might have that the translator has inserted the word the in front of law and capitalized the L. When you see that, you might be inclined to think that he's talking particularly or maybe even exclusively about the law of Moses. That's a mistake. He is, in fact, talking about the general concept of law. He's not focusing on any particular legal code, but rather speaking how any law, law by its very nature, works in justifying a person or showing that a person is not guilty. And quite simply, the law only justifies a person who is truly innocent. That is, a person who has never failed to do anything that it commands and has never done anything that it prohibits and has carried out all of its expectations absolutely flawlessly. The Apostle Paul, using the law of Moses as an example, said in Galatians 3, verses 10 through 12, It is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them, but the man who does them shall live by them. Jesus agreed. And when he was asked, What must I do to inherit eternal life? He said, Oh, that's a simple answer to that question. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength and love your neighbor as yourself and demonstrate that by keeping all of the commandments and then you'll live. He said that in Luke 10, 25-28 and Matthew 19, 16-19 and James, the brother of our Lord who was an elder in the church at Jerusalem and wrote one of the books of the New Testament, said it with particular clarity. James 2, verses 10 through 11. For whoever shall keep the whole law, whatever law it is, if you keep the whole thing, and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. That really makes sense. If you were dangling over a pit by a chain of ten links, you're holding on to the last one, how many links have to break for you to fall? Just one. One link broken compromises the integrity of the chain, and one commandment broken makes a transgressor of the law. Now, in that particular passage, it might appear that James is talking about the law of Moses. You might even think, well, he quotes from the Ten Commandments, but not so. He makes it clear he's speaking to Christians about what he calls the law of the king, that is, the law of Christ. And my point there is that these statements are generally true of any legal system, and the the lesson is this. The law only justifies a truly innocent person. That is a perfect, flawless person who has kept all of its parts with all of their hearts. That's what the Bible says. And that's why the apostle concludes, if you are a sinner, 
If you have ever in any respect violated any part of God's law, you cannot be justified by works of law. Only the innocent will be found innocent. And that excludes me. And it excludes all of you. And you and those who are out there Those who came before we were born and those who will live after we are gone. Only Christ himself and the holy angels can make such a claim. Because other than those, all have sinned. And that's the reason for Paul's consistent, unassailable, unyielding conclusion in Romans 3 and verse 20. By the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified. Now if this is the case, if the law will not help us to be found not guilty, instead it will be that which screams our guilt, then what hope do we have? We might hope to be found not guilty by reason of insufficient evidence. Throughout history, there have been many people who committed crimes, even very serious crimes, and they were arrested and they were brought to trial, but in the end it was determined that the evidence was not sufficient to prove their guilt. And so a righteous judge was unable to condemn them. Now there's no doubt that God is a righteous judge. He will not condemn any person unless it is shown before heaven and earth and all creation that that person really is guilty. But that's no consolation for me. Not for you either. Because God knows everything about our lives. He knows us better than those who know us best in this world. The writer of Hebrews declares that the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow. It slices through the facade of our externalities and exposes our innermost being. It is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart and there is no creature hidden from his sight But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Hebrews 4, 11 through 13. The Old Testament prophets describe God as one whose eyes scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. And so the prophet Jeremiah said there's no iniquity hidden from his vision. Jeremiah 16 and 17. And with all of this, the Apostle Paul agrees. He warns that in that day, God will judge the secrets of men. Romans 2 and verse 16. The wise man Solomon says that though life passes by like a vapor, and every moment, even the most meaningful and heavy, burst like a bubble, and they're gone. And you might think, well, there went that. That's over. Now we just move forward into the future. But God, in that day, will, by his mighty power, gather up all those moments. And the Bible says in Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 14, he will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. I've known people who were very smooth talkers, even in very difficult situations. I've never been that kind of person myself. 
But I've known people who uh, you, could, you could catch them in the act and they could talk their way out of it. They, they had the ability to obfuscate and muddy the waters. But that won't work with God. I know because in the Bible there was a man like that met Jesus. He's the man who asked him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus gave him the answer. And he tried to justify himself, the Bible says there in Luke chapter 10, by sort of insinuating that the words God had used didn't really have any meaning. Jesus answered him, and he had nothing to say. And in that day, the Bible says, every mouth will be stopped. No one will be found not guilty by reason of insufficient evidence. Perhaps then we should resort to some of the arguments men and women give for why even though they are technically guilty, they should not be held responsible or suffer any penalty for their actions. Some people plead not guilty by reason of privilege. They might claim that because of their race, or their nationality, or their family, or their education, or their position in society, or their money, that they should be treated differently than others. And in this world, those things will generally cause you to be treated differently than others, but not before God. Paul says there's no partiality, no favoritism with God. Romans 2 and verse 11. If you think that you might give something to God, a gift, something that could change his mind and his disposition towards you. You know how he would respond? Psalm 59 through 12. I will not take a bull from your house, nor goats out of your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine and all of its fullness. You see, everything we have in this world, God gave to us. We don't have anything that he needs. And even if you could think of something, he wouldn't take it. Because you can't bribe him. You can't buy him. He is a righteous, incorruptible judge. He gives the same judgments to the rich and the poor. He never condemns the righteous, but terrible thought. He never justifies the wicked. By his own testimony in Exodus 23, verses 4 through 8, no one will be found not guilty by reason of privilege. Well, what about this one? Not guilty by reason of moral or religious superiority. This is a rather popular answer among religious people. And I think most of us are religious people. So we need to think about this. And the Bible has a lot to say about it. This was the reasoning of the Pharisees in Jesus' own day. And it found its way into the church through their influence in the doctrine of the Judaizers. I want you to consider how they thought. The Pharisees and the Judaizers knew that they had not kept the whole law perfectly. They knew they were not innocent. That was, to use the words of the Apostle Peter, a burden that neither they nor their fathers had been able to bear. So, to justify themselves, 
Now think about that. When, when you think of a Pharisee, what's the first word that comes to mind? Probably the phrase self-righteous. What does self-righteousness mean? It means self-justification. To justify themselves, they reinvented the meaning of perfection into something that was more manageable for them and preferably less manageable for others. So they would select and create a short list of laws and they came out of God's law, but these were the laws that mattered. These were the ones, to use some of our own language, that were essentials, germane to salvation, salvation issues. This was the important part. And everything else could be overshadowed and ignored and relegated to the status of non-essential. That's why when the rich young ruler was told that he had to keep the commandments in order to have eternal life, he said, which commandments? Certainly you can't mean all of them. Nobody does that. But which ones to be just enough? Which ones to make us better than others? Different than others? Now this can be structured in many different ways. Not guilty by reason of moral or ethical superiority. I live better than other people. Not guilty by reason of religious superiority. I worship better. I serve God better than other people. Not guilty by reason of doctrinal or theological superiority. I believe better than other people. Now you might even be able to find them and drag them as evidence for your plea. You might be able to point over there and say, look, there's an example. We are better than that church. We teach better than them. We worship better than them. We work better than them. We're better than them in all these ways. Now where will that kind of plea get us? Jesus told us. Because he told a story about a man who made that very argument. And he was able to point out a fellow that was right by him and tell God, I'm better than this man and I can even tell you how. And Jesus said, that man did not go home justified. The Apostle Paul says, if we reason this way, if we say, I am justified because I do this thing or these things right and even better, then the law will become a curse to us because the law does not demand better. It is not satisfied with superiority. The law demands perfection. And it's satisfied with nothing less. If you have read your Bible, you know that what I'm about to say is true. God has not divided his word into essentials and non-essentials. Any such division is man-made, arbitrary, a fabrication. And if we seek to be justified by works of law, everything is an essential. 
And if everything is an essential, you have failed already, even if you manage to keep your short list perfectly. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Let me bring it home for us. He who said, take this cup and drink from it all of you, also said, love one another as I have loved you. So if you do the one, but you fail to do the other, you have become a transgressor of the law. No one will be justified or found not guilty by reason of moral or religious superiority. Now we're nearly out of options. What about this one? Not guilty by reason of ignorance. Now here, like the first plea we considered, and in contrast to all the others, the Bible actually indicates God takes this one seriously. God does not judge a person who is truly ignorant. When Israel sinned against God at Kadesh Barnea, they said that they wouldn't obey God because they were concerned for the welfare of their little ones. And God told them, you have sinned and you're going to die. But your little ones and your children, who you say will be victims, who today have no knowledge of good and evil, I'll not judge them. They'll go in there and I will give it to them and they shall possess it. Deuteronomy 1 and verse 39, the little ones were not judged because they were truly, morally ignorant. So God is mindful and merciful toward those who truly do not and cannot know. There are some people like that in this room. but Most of them are being held in the arms of their mother. That does not mean anything to the vast majority of us or of other people in the world. In Romans 1 verses 19 through 20 and 2 verses 14 through 15, God declares that in creation and in the capacity to exercise moral reasoning, which most people develop as they grow older, comes accountability to the law and condemnation to those who break it. And it might be that there are people in this world who've never opened a Bible and never heard about Jesus. But if they have shown that they have no interest in God himself, in spite of all that he's done to reveal his glory to them in the things that are made, then they show that they would equally reject the Bible or Christ if they were exposed to those things. And so the Apostle Paul concludes, they are without excuse. Today it's very popular to be agnostic. And the sense is that those who claim to be agnostic, uh, they think it's a safe position, whatever turns out to be right. I'll be okay because I didn't commit to anything but myself and my own opinions. Some people think you're smarter if you're an agnostic, which is very strange. Because the word agnostic is the Greek word version of the Latin word ignoramus. It means to be without knowledge. Now in reality, if you have a thought, if you have an opinion, you're not an agnostic. You might be ignorant, but you're not that ignorant. You're not ignorant enough to justify you. You're not safe. Just because you choose to neglect certain information. No one capable of observing the world and reasoning about good and evil will be found not guilty by reason of ignorance. So then, what hope does anyone have? None. 
none. That's what I'm trying to show us. If it's just us, if we come before God ourselves, we're hopeless. There is only one way for a sinner to be found not guilty. And that is by pardon. In religious terms, we would call it the forgiveness or the remission of sins. And we might use the word salvation. Pardon is the judicial term. If the judge tells us that though we are guilty, and he knows it, we will be pardoned, then we will be treated as though we're not guilty. Justification will be accounted to us and we will be allowed to live even though we deserve to die. Just as the Apostle Paul speaks of those not guilty by reason of innocence with the phrase justification by works of law, he speaks of those not guilty by reason of pardon with the phrase justification by faith. And for our remaining time I want us to consider the meaning of that expression. The doctrine of justification by faith is simply this. Sinners are justified or made right with God by means of pardon on the basis of the work of Jesus Christ, especially his death on the cross, and on the condition of faith. Pardon is the means. That's how we are made right. The work of Jesus is the basis. That's why. We are pardoned. But to whom does God give this remarkable gift? That is to those who believe. Why would God forgive anyone's sins at all? Because of Jesus. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, says John 1 and verse 29. Jesus defeated sin and Satan and death and he made pardon possible. He accomplished our justification by his own bloody death on the cross, Romans 5 and verse 9, and by his resurrection, Romans 4:25, and by his present reign and intercession for us, Romans 8:33 through 34. And he gives this pardon to everyone that believes, Romans 1:16, and that's the consistent answer throughout the Bible. But what does it mean to believe? Now this might be the most important part of the study. We've discovered that there is hope for sinners, but only one hope. Pardon is given because of the work of Jesus Christ, and this offer of pardon has both a universality and a limitation. It is to everyone that believes. Now everyone is a broad term, just as broad as all, as in all have sinned. It's broad enough to include me and you and you and everybody out there and everyone who lived before us or comes after us. But among everyone, only those that believe. So what does it mean to believe? What is faith? Now we're going to look at this in very simple terms. Faith in the Bible includes three components or aspects. Knowledge, trust, and I'm using the word repentance alongside that word. I'll explain that in a moment. And then loyalty. Knowledge, and you might hear the term mental assent, simply means that you have to learn something and you have to accept it before you can believe it. The Apostle Paul says, How shall they believe in him of whom they've not heard? Romans 10, 14. And he concludes, So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Romans 10, 17. 
What is the content of the knowledge that you must learn and accept in order to be pardoned of your sins? Not everything, thank God. The the knowledge that you must have is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Who he is. The Christ, the Son of God. What he has done, especially his death and resurrection and ascension. What he's doing, ruling and reigning from heaven. What he will do when he comes again to fully accomplish his work of redemption. That's why the ancient Christians, when somebody was going to become a disciple, they asked them the question, what do you believe? And the right answer was, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Trust means the personal appropriation of that knowledge into one's own life. And I find it to be so seamlessly connected with repentance, it's difficult to see where one ends and the other one begins. When one believes on the Lord with all of his heart, trusting him fully, that necessitates a personal turning to Jesus. And that's what the word repentance means. You turn to Jesus as your prophet and your priest and your king. You you make him the sole source of knowledge about God, of reconciliation with God, of authority for the direction and course of your life. For how can you call on him in whom you've not believed? That expression, calling on the name of the Lord, refers to that last point of loyalty or allegiance. It's not just something you do with your mouth. It's an act of the whole person and of the whole heart. It's bowing the knee and confessing that Jesus is Lord of the universe, therefore Lord of your life. It begins with baptism in water, the event in which God pardons our sins and washes them away, according to Acts 2.38 and Acts 22.16. But it doesn't end there. It continues from thenceforward in an ever-intensifying transformation into the image of Christ himself. And if we put all of these components together, then perhaps it's better and well within the range of definition for the original terms used by the apostles to say that we are justified by faithfulness. When you read the Apostle Paul talking about justification by faith, he means faithfulness. But what does it mean to be faithful? Faithfulness is not flawlessness. I used to think that it was, but it's not. If it was flawlessness, we wouldn't need any pardon. We would be truly innocent. Faithfulness is not hiding your shortcomings and sins and pretending to be better than you are. You can't hide them from God anyway. In fact, faithfulness demands an honest recognition of our imperfections. It's impossible to be faithful if you do not acknowledge that you are flawed, weak, ignorant, imperfect, and you need to improve. Faithfulness is not just doing better and being better than others. That's superiority. And when we think that we're right because we are better, we've changed everything. The condition of justification becomes our superiority and the means becomes our flawlessness and whatever it is that we've convinced ourselves we're flawless about. And then the basis is no longer Jesus. It's us. 
And that's why the Apostle Paul said in Galatians chapter 5 that if we think that we can be justified by works of law, we are severed from Christ and fallen from grace. Listen very carefully. If you stand before God and he asks you, how do you plead? And you say, one loaf, one cup, no Sunday school, no instrumental music, no women teachers, you will go to hell with everyone else in the world who did not trust in Jesus Christ. That will not justify you. I don't know what God would say to it, but he might say, that's not what I asked. You're not on trial for using multiple cups. You're on trial for the sins you committed. You're on trial for the things that you failed to do. And telling me all the things you did right doesn't change any of that. That's not faithfulness. Faithfulness is not just going to the right church and living clean and staying away from people who don't. Faithfulness is much more than that. It is the relentless, lifelong pursuit of the will of King Jesus in all things. To know it and to do it in worship, yes, and in life, and in truth, and in character, and in everything. It is the understanding that we are flawed every step of the way, but without despair. It is the determination to pursue perfection and the confidence that through the revelation of Jesus Christ in his word, real progress can be made. It is the recognition that we will never be perfect in this world. But without despair, because we are not justified by our perfection. We're justified by his pardon. And therefore, for his glory and for his sake, we press on to the end. What is faithfulness? Jesus, I should say rather the Apostle Paul, offered this definition in Philippians chapter 3 verses 9 through 14. It is to be found in him not having my own justification which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the justification which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, But I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have already apprehended. That's not faithfulness. It's not deceiving yourself into thinking that because you've gotten these five things right, you've crossed the line, you can settle down and wait for Jesus to come and scoop you up and take you to glory. That's not faithfulness. What is faithfulness? He said, forgetting those things which are behind. Your failures, yes, but also your progress. Don't boast in it. Don't think that it makes you any better 
Don't think that it will be the basis of your justification. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's faithfulness. One day you will stand at the bar on high. One day your record you will see. One day you will answer the question of life. What will your answer be? Remember the last verse of that song? Now is the time to prepare, my friends. Make your soul spotless and free, washed in the blood of the crucified one. He will your answer be.